Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith's America Podcast, Volume 20. we got an awesome show this week with former Ohio State star running back Maurice Claret. What a story. And I can't wait for you guys to hear Maurice's vulnerability, his honesty, and why it took him so long to find it. All of the obstacles, all of the missteps, all of the mistakes that led him to what he believes is the best version of himself to date. He's making quite a difference now in his life. Was a tremendous football player. I can't wait for you guys to hear how it ended, why it ended, his regrets, and where he feels he can make such a difference now. Before we get to this tremendous conversation with Maurice, I want to chat with you guys quickly about Kalo. Kalo rings are designed to ensure your hands are safe and comfortable in the workplace, the gym, the outdoors, and everywhere in between. I wear one every single day. Lainey wears one every single day. They're perfect for her at the beach. She doesn't want to wear her diamonds over on the sand because they get gummed up. She might get sunscreen all over them, and of course there's the potential to lose them on the beach. So she wears a Kalo ring. Unlike your traditional metal wedding bands, Kalo rings are made from silicone. That allows you to keep your ring on at times where traditional metal wedding rings would need to be removed, i.e. the beach, maybe the gym. For those of you guys who work with your hands every single day, pipe fitters, machinists, construction guys, they're perfect for you. Kalo rings allow people to live their lives safely and comfortably while still representing their commitment to their spouse and their family. Tons of athletes wear Kalo rings. Guys in the NFL like Andy Dalton, Kirk Cousins, Jordy Nelson, and Derek Carr, NBA stars Steph Curry, Isaiah Thomas, and Harrison Barnes wear Kalo rings. Major League Baseball players Bryce Harper, Chris Bryant, and Mike Trout wear Kalo rings. Country music icons Jason Aldean and Sam Hunt wear them. If you're a firefighter, a policeman, if you're in the military, maybe you're a carpenter, construction worker, electrician, or mechanic, these rings are perfect for you. Men and women wear them every day in the gym. Hundreds of professional athletes from Olympians, MMA fighters, CrossFit champions, and pro surfers use them every single day. And you can find what you want, guys. 18 different styles and more than 50 colors. They're available right now at Kalo.com and retail stores nationwide, including Academy Sports and Outdoors, Bass Pro Shops, REI, and Dick's. The quickest way to get them, though, Go to Kalo.com, that's Q-A-L-O.com, and use the promo code MARTY for 15% off right now. Kalo.com, promo code MARTY for 15% off right now. Maurice, first, if you would do me a favor and describe your journey to someone who knew nothing about it. I would first start off by, you know, saying, uh, you know, obviously Maurice Claret uh, from Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, came up like uh, most inner city kids in any inner city America, uh, you know, having hopes and aspirations and, and visions of being a professional football player one day, you know, uh, believing that, you know, that's what I had enough talent uh, to do. Had some running, just some troubles uh, during my adolescent years. Uh, they were blessings in disguise uh, uh, from, from what I can reverse and look about it. You know, went through the juvenile system as a kid. I uh, got out of the out of the juvenile justice system. Uh, ended up going to high school, having a tremendous amount of success in high school. Uh, went down to Ohio State uh, as a freshman. I ended up starting running back for Ohio State, 
in the process of doing that, we went out and won a national championship uh, back in 2003. After winning the championship, uh, I would describe it as a, a loss of focus, you know, having more power and influence than I ever had, been, I had ever uh, seen or imagined in my life. Put myself in a position where I started to accept the legal benefits and just uh, live outside the, the regular confinements or frame of a local uh, college kid or any college kid for that, for that fact. After that, the NCAA came in in two, the fall of 2003. They suspended me indefinitely, and I would describe uh, the fall of 2003 as sort of like the uh, the pivotal or transitional moment that probably impacted my life uh, the most. Uh, the first time that I um, dealt with any sort of uh, mental health issues, uh, be it stress, be it depression, uh, be it anxiety, be it confusion, uh, or be it from uh, from all of those little little personal ailments that that I uh, had going on in my life. Uh, from there, I felt like I just kind of leased in life uh, for the next two or three years. I got drafted in 2005 after sitting out for two years. I was drafted in the third round to the Denver Broncos, even after uh, sitting out and having a horrible combine. Uh, when I went to Denver, uh, Denver obviously thought that they um, drafted the same kid uh, who had played at Ohio State a couple of years prior, but I had so many uh, personal issues and personal uh, deficiencies uh, that were going on in my life that I just basically couldn't uh, be a professional or was a condition or trained to be a professional. So uh, after many interventions and those people trying to get me back on track, I, I ended up um, basically uh, uh, being released from the team. And, and this was the fall of 2005. So I spent about six or seven months with the team, uh, if that's accurate, somewhere within there. Uh, after I was um, uh, released from the team, I went into a deeper uh, depression and sort of like a, uh, a loss of some sorts. I came back to Ohio. When I got back to Ohio, uh, I think just the, the, the basic uh, mindset was just basically how do I take care of myself without football and without a, uh education anymore? And what made sense or what I leaned on uh, was just me basically being back into the streets. And so I got to a hustling. Uh, selling drugs, uh, robbing, and, and basically just street activity. I ended up um, committing a crime in downtown Columbus. This was in 2005, December 31st. Uh, from there, about eight months later, uh, I got caught uh, with uh, uh, four weapons in the car on a high-speed chase running from the police. It was probably um, one of the best things that happened to me personally, looking back on it. Uh, after that, I was uh, transitioned to the um, Franklin County Jail. And uh, from there, uh, after about, you know, two months, I was sentenced to seven and a half years uh, of incarceration. And, and once I was sentenced to seven and a half years, I went to uh, Toledo Correctional Facility, which is in Toledo, Ohio. I spent four years in a closed security facility. Uh, and a closed security means that you're basically locked down for about 20 hours off a day. And um, it, was a, it was the best thing that, that kind of happened to me at that time. I was able to get my life back in order and get my mind uh, in another direction outside of sports. Uh, I was released from prison in 2010. Um, I went out to play football, minor league football, uh, in Omaha, Nebraska, which was another great experience being out in Omaha. Uh, it was a, a great city to uh, adjust in, probably the most American city that I can think of that I've ever been to. And I was out there for about two and a half years. I came back to Ohio uh, about 2013, I think, that uh, – ESPN had reached out and we had uh, done a 30 for 30. Didn't even know what a 30 for 30 was prior to doing it. And uh, after we did the uh, 30 for 30, you know, my life kind of uh, revved back up. And I, I went to go speak on the road for about, you know, uh, three years. In the process of that, you know, I'd done about 300 speaking engagements, just pretty much speaking upon my life and 
uh, the redemptive process and, and the things that I had to overcome and, and work through and get through or just some of the issues that I had went through between high school, college, and, uh, you know, just using my life as a, as a teachable moment and a teachable lesson to a lot of uh, college kids, uh, businesses, and, and high schoolers and everybody else around the country. Uh, and from there, uh, I ran about so much business and entrepreneurship in, 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 um, in prison that uh, I had ended up getting to getting into some entrepreneurial activities. Uh, once I was re- released and I started to get some money for speaking, I ended up um, getting into the transportation industry. And uh, I basically went from like one truck to about 12 trucks at one time. And transportation packaging kind of went hand to hand. I got my minority business enterprise certificate. And I ended up uh, doing um, uh, very well, or not very well, I did, I did pretty decent. Uh, with my minority business entrepreneur certificate, uh, with a, with a couple couple companies here closely in um, uh, Columbus, Ohio, and after that, I'm doing that for a couple of years. I ended up getting into what I mentioned now, uh, which is uh, the behavior health. We work with uh, mental health and drug and alcohol uh, uh, clients or patients or whatever it is uh, that you would uh, like to describe last. And I started that business back in about 2016. And from 2016 to now, um, we've uh, we started in Youngstown, grew down to Columbus, and we're in a few other different cities. And I, um, and, you know, I'm all rock and roll in the world with that. Uh, I employ about 150 people, and I get up every day in the morning. I'm happy to be alive. I'm happy to be rocking and rolling. I'm happy to be uh, in a different place or space in my life. And I don't know if that covers everything, but now it's kind of like the, the five minute version. That's a lot. Uh, I mean. That's a whole lot. You're still a really young man. And yeah, 34. I, I, 34 I, wonder, I wonder, Maurice, when you sit and reflect on everything that you just said, when you take a moment to consider everything you've managed, learned, experienced throughout this journey, what's the legacy? I would like to believe this is just my humble opinion. I would like to believe as someone uh, who didn't let the uh, circumstances define their life or define their life that I was able to, um, at some point, uh, graduate from a, um, from a victim of experience and, to, and, and into uh, a person who has defined their lives and sort of took control of their lives. I think that um, uh, the, the first part of my life, I think that uh, just not being conscious or aware or having a tremendous amount of responsibility over my personal behavior outside of the football field, uh, if you can kind of frame it that way, I think that there's a there's a um, a sense that all athletes we have this sense of control over the football field. But when it comes to living life and making decisions and um, uh, being autonomous um, outside of any institution of some sorts, we think that we're either we need handlers or carriers or people to kind of like you know um, take care of us. You know, and, and, and oftentimes when things happen outside of those frameworks, we feel like we're a victim. If something happens bad, uh, but I think that uh, my, my legacy is somebody who just kind of like took control of their lives in every different phase and took responsibility and in, 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 uh, in, in a person who just uh, went through these experiences that shaped them and, and just created the life or I'm creating the life that I want. And by that, I'm able to, um, you know, have a sense of fulfillment uh, through doing work that I love and that has directly affected me. You know, I work in the mental health and, and drug and alcohol recovery world. And, and both has, uh, they, they're both intertwined with my life. And you know, I'm still on mental health medication uh, to this day and have been since uh, 2006. And uh, I've obviously had a um, history with drugs and alcohol, how, how they've affected my life um, in a negative manner and to be working in these spaces and to uh, feel like that all of the, uh, the experiences that I had weren't in vain 
and to be so connected and to have a, I have a real feeling or real feelings in regards to what I'm doing on a daily basis. Uh, I just think it's just tremendous and I'm able to help the communities at large that we're in. So I would like up until this point, my legacy to be somebody who just kind of took control of their life and uh, somebody that I believe that you can learn from uh, no matter uh, what situation or circumstance that you're in. You know, but I, I live life. You know, life doesn't live me so too. Put me in the moment where you made the personal decision that you had to change. It was a progression. Uh, I think the first, uh, the, the start of it was, of course, being initially locked up uh, in the county jail. So this was maybe, let's say, August of 2006. And uh, the first um, seven months of my incarceration, I was uh, locked down for 23 hours out of the day. And, uh, you know, 23 hours is a tremendous amount of time. Uh, to just sit in a, like a nine by four cell, you know, you're just sitting there with a with a, a steel mattress and uh, a sheet for a cover and another sheet that you ball up for a pillow. And you know, you wake up at four in the morning, get your first meal, your last meal is like that four in the afternoon. And so you just uh, you have a tremendous amount of time. And so uh, after living uh, the life that I had lived up into the age of uh, you know from from all of my success at Ohio State until the point I'm in the county jail. You just go through that period of time, those first seven months being reflective and asking yourself, um, how did you get there? And uh, that was like the initial birthing. I think the, the part of discovery, like, you know, how did I get here? How, how am I at this moment? And like, you don't have this, this long drawn out period, but it's just a constant process. Like, man, you know, how did I go from, you know, having so much success to put myself inside of a, um, uh, a jail cell and basically being inside this moment. And so what ended up happening was uh, I couldn't find a definitive answer. And, like, literally couldn't find no understanding as to how I ended up in the county jail from being in the NFL uh, seven or eight months prior. Um, but there was a, a tremendous amount of help uh, that came from one book. And prior to this, I can't really, really, really remember reading any book independently uh, from uh, outside of school. And it was a small 70-page reading. It was a book called As a Man Thinketh uh, by James Allen. And uh, the small read, uh, about 70 pages, very uh, practical uh, language. Uh, the book was written, like, I think about, like, in uh, at the late, late, late 1800s or early 1900s, I don't know, uh, by the guy James Allen. And it was the first time that I um, ever heard that thoughts were things, and the things that we think about basically become our life, you know. And from there, I was able to frame uh, myself. I was able to just kind of, like, be introspective towards myself and say, okay, you know, uh, for all of these years, being from Youngstown, being a guy from the inner city, I thought myself to be some sort of gangster. And then it was like, uh, it was explained to me that the things that you speak about and the things that you, um, the things you think about, the things that you speak about eventually become your life. And basically those things uh, run and have consequences. And so at that point I was like, oh man, this stuff is starting to make sense. Like I've thought and spoke this lifestyle into existence. I thought when I was a gangster. So I had to respond as a gangster and I had gangster consequences. I didn't think of myself as some professional man or or somebody who um, uh, was some sort of a, a model uh, or, or, or professional athlete. I thought that I was a real gangster who was playing football. And so from there, uh, I think it was just a discovery process from there. You know, I, got, I got sentenced to prison, uh, which was seven and a half years. And when I went, it was probably another thing, uh, another great thing that happened to me. The warden of the prison, his name was Mr. Teleconte. And Mr. Conte was actually from uh, Sierra Leone. And his father was a chief in Sierra Leone for, for a number of years. And, um, he said, Maurice, you know, in America, uh, when you guys get in trouble, uh, guys throw you away. Uh, he said, but in Africa, when guys get in trouble uh, from Sierra Leone, he said, we bring you closer to the village. 
He said, we figure out what's going wrong. And then we actually pushed these guys back out to the village after we repair them. And he said, while you're here, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of fix yourself, repair yourself, and, and get yourself back on your feet. And so he said, I'm going to put you on a bunch of psychosocial and emotional supportive courses that we have here inside of the prison. And I didn't know what he was talking about at the time. So uh, through, the, through the initial process of going through your anger management, uh, your responsible adult culture, your family planning, uh, your drug and alcohol courses, and all of these courses, uh, that helped to, uh, that, that weren't traditional uh, academic courses, but stuff that had to do more with social, psychosocial, emotional education. Uh, these things uh, began me to look in areas of my life that I never looked in before or addressed or to even give words or frame to. And so from there, uh, I just started to grow. And that was the first time after that uh, that I had this catalog. And I think that this was the actual game changer in my life. Um, so it was a catalog called Barney Books. And Barney Books is the first time that I've actually just looked and picked up information in books that I basically decided to want to read. And literally when I was in prison, I would probably say I've, I've motored through about 300 books and I would do like weekly book reports on books that I had read. Uh, it, it was mainly just on biographies and, and, um, and I would ha- have a slew of just business magazines and entrepreneur and economists and uh, Inc. 300 and anything that had to do with business, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, our, our, our local paper from Youngstown, uh, which was the Vindicator. And I would have all these publications. I would just read and read and read and read so much. Uh, and I think that those things were a part of my transformation, but it didn't happen overnight. I think it was the, um, the, the process of just educating myself and becoming more aware and learning to comprehend and just basically, basically recontextualizing who I was, you know, just putting my, myself, my identity, my name and everything into a different space and really behaving in that way. You use the terminology pushed back out to the village. What's it like to reintegrate into society? after 23 hours a day of lockdown in prison for three and a half years? Yeah, um, uh, at first it was difficult um, with the, the socialization part. Um, but just, you know, just, just to give you uh, some framework, you know, in prison you don't talk to anybody. You know, you talk to the, the handful of people who you talk to, uh, but the prison is, out of most places, it's a socially awkward place, uh, you know, uh, from, from, from communication, uh, the, the level of intensity that you wake up with, you know, six in the morning, you're waking up, uh, you know, you've seen guys get their head beat in at six in the morning, you've seen guys uh, get stabbed six in the morning, you've seen guys get up and just have to have this intense, um, intense mindset from the top of the day. And if we really don't socialize with one another, uh, we really don't even look at each other or, or interact with one another because in prison is deemed as disrespectful. And so when I came back out to um, society after having like this intense mindset uh, for four years, almost like, like you're in this whole different world of some sorts, uh, you're just uh, you're hypersensitive towards stuff initially. And, you know, you're, you're trying to um, decompress yourself um, intellectually or mentally uh, the best way you know how. And you, you don't have to take everything as serious, you know, because if you ever see a guy who, who just gets out of prison, like he's just super intense, super serious. And it's for no other reason than that's how he's been conditioned to behave for the number of years he was uh, previously incarcerated. And so initially when I came out, you know, uh, I didn't realize it, but I was still institutionalized. And when I went to Omaha, Nebraska, this is like, it was probably the best thing that happened to me. You know, I was going to the uh, to the local uh, Planet Fitness and I was going to the grocery store. And this was literally like going to recreation and going to commissary. You know, I would go to the football practice. I would go to the, um, to the grocery store and I would go to the, the weight training room. And I did it for a while. And it was a time when my lady was like, yo, you know, you just like still do the same thing you were doing in prison. You know, even all the way to the point where I would grab my clothes. And, you know, in prison you have two or three outfits. 
And so I would grab my clothes and I would tuck them nice and neat in the corner of a room and tuck my shoes nice and neat in the corner of a room. And you don't even realize that you're behaving this way until somebody else points it out to you and say, yo, you know, you kind of feel messed up from the environment that you were in. Uh, and, I, and I had no clue. Uh, I think the hardest part for me was uh, the socialization with my daughter, uh, you know, because, you know, before I went to prison, she was, you know, three or four weeks old. When I got out of prison, she was four or five. And so when my lady would go to work, uh, I would be left alone at the house with her. And, you know, I didn't have anything else to say to her. I was just like, hey, you know, do you want me to turn on TV? Do you want me to, uh, you know, take me to Chuck E. Cheese? Like, you know, what do you want? You know, I just had no uh, understanding of how to even adjust with that. Uh, but I just got to, like, uh, really give um, a big shout-out to uh, the Omaha Nighthawks. They don't exist anymore. Uh, but Joe Mowgli, uh, Joe Mowgli, he's down in uh, Coastal Carolina. He was our coach there uh, when I was in Omaha, Nebraska. And, and Joe, uh, Joe knows uh, I was half the athlete that I was. Uh, when I played football in Ohio State, but he had allowed me to still be on the team, to still get paid, and to still adjust, even though uh, I was a bit harsher or a lot more serious than these other guys. Uh, but that gave me the platform and the room to grow. Probably the hardest thing that I would say is uh, just just a living arrangement. Those are the, the toughest things. Uh, just being a convicted felon, uh, there's so many barriers in regards to uh, where you can live and how you can live and sort of being pushed back or placed in certain environments that I didn't want to be in. That was the challenge, uh, both in Omaha and also in Ohio, even even in Columbus. I'm so fascinated by the thought process and the psychoanalytical work that you've done internally on yourself about what you think is what you are, that entire philosophy. I want to make sure I yes. get this. As a Man Thinketh, that was the name of the book? Yeah. Okay. So I wonder what what role you believe ego played in your story? It's the demise of it. You know, it's it's one hundred percent the demise. So, so you know, um, we can probably we can probably speak an hour on ego, right? And so, um, for an athlete, ego is probably um, it's the the gift and the curse. Just to be just to be simple, right? Uh, to be a top tier, high performing, dominant athlete of any sorts, you have to believe that you're the best, right? You have to you have to really wake up, believe that, that there's nobody better than me and that I'm about to outwork the entire world and I'm about to just kick everybody's uh, butt. And so uh, you condition yourself and rev yourself up and to believe that, right? And once you start to uh, receive the uh, the recognition, be it on ESPN or, or on any, any other uh, sporting platform, once you start to receive it from the fans, you start to believe that you're this person, right? You can't separate life from anything else and you start to feel entitled. And the more people sort of uh, kiss your butt, the more people sort of tell you yes, um, you start to form or create a different reality than your peers. And so it's a dangerous thing. It is very dangerous. I, I personally believe, right, and, and I'll shift this into a different conversation to come back to it. It's a dangerous thing to for a man to have what's what he perceives at 18, 19, or 20 years old to have infinite power. And I describe it as this, you know, I went from having every possible award you could want to win in high school at 18. 13 months later, I went every single thing uh, as a college athlete. I went, you know, Big Ten freshman of the year, uh, breaking records at Ohio State, and then we go win the national championship. And so that was a tremendous amount of success. You go ahead and add on top of that, this is the era where uh, me and LeBron, you know, we're, we're 30, 40 minutes away from where we grew up at. You know, now he's right. going through his deal. And I'm right there watching and experiencing and a part of this whole deal when he's becoming LeBron to the world, his rookie season, or, or going to his rookie season. And so when you're around that, your perspective or your ego, you don't even classify it as that then, but there's this natural sense of entitlement since I make you all, 
since I've entertained you all and since you all find so much adulation from watching me play or, or, or some of these things, I feel entitled to everything that I'm getting. So I didn't feel like that I was breaking rules by accepting cars or accepting meals from people or stuff like that. You know, I wasn't accepting tens and twenties and thousands of dollars. We're talking about, you know, 50 bucks here, 75 bucks there. Uh, it, just small stuff, you know, to use a car for a couple of weeks and, and things of that nature, even though they were wrong, you, you naturally feel entitled to this. And even when all that stuff is taken away, you feel misplaced because you're the superstar, but you don't have the, the finances of an NFL athlete, but you still feel entitled. You still feel like the world owes you something. And a lot of your decision-making is driven from ego because society does a great job of boosting up athletes. You know, but one of the hardest things after that is that, you know, what you don't realize is that this is temporary. You know, that's, that's one thing that, you know, young guys don't believe that the game is ever going to end or that there will be a, uh, a Carlos Hyde or an Ezekiel Elliott or a Boom Heron or a Beanie Wells. You don't think that there will be another hero. You know what I'm saying? You think that you'll be this, this infinite hero for forever, and then when your time stops, it's probably uh, emotionally one of the hardest things to deal with. And so overcoming the ego is um, or, or putting the ego in the right place and being able to adjust with life after that athletic ego has to basically sort of take a part, you know, was what probably one of my toughest things before, but I could, I could still tap into it and use it if need be in the, in the competitive space of business. But um, it, it definitely was uh, part of engineering my downfall before. What do you think your life would look like if the NFL had no age restriction? Uh, based upon how I was living before the choices before, I think that I'd probably be broke somewhere. I would probably be one of these uh, busted up uh, NFL athletes who, you know, played a bunch of years, spent a bunch of money recklessly, and um, and will be trying to figure it out somewhere, you know. Um, and, and, and I always say that, and I don't say that with any level of critique towards anybody, uh, but I grew up in the, uh, the MTV Cribs culture. You know, uh, I grew up in the, you know, if I had the money to buy three Bentleys, I'd have probably bought three Bentleys. I'd have probably bought, you know, uh, 300 grand or 400 grand in jewelry. And, you know, I'd have probably thought that I had to take care of, you know, every friend who came out of my neighborhood. You know, I, I grew up in that culture or, or from that era uh, where that was a thing. And I'm pretty sure it's still a thing now. But I think, you know, during the early parts of the early 2000s and stuff like that, uh, that was a thing. I think that I would have, um, I think I would, I would have uh, performed well, I would like to believe. Uh, I think that uh, my talent was uh, special. I think that I was very good at uh, a very young age, and uh, I worked my ass off uh, more than more than anybody. And I was I was uh, I was I was a combination of Saquon Barkley and Marshawn Lynch. You know, years before that they were uh, even doing what they were doing, just uh, a very physical and, and determined and uh, intelligent football player. I can't say that. Um, and, and I believe there's a, there's, there's, everybody couldn't make it, you know, and I just through uh, physical ability and mental ability. Uh, I remember Adrian Peterson came right up to me. I think he's one of the guys who could have made the jump. But it's, I think it's the same thing with basketball. Not every guy is equipped to come directly from high school and go play in the professional ranks. But I think that there's some guys uh, who are just talented enough and who just have the physical and mental components. Uh, to play at another level if the uh, if the opportunity was there. So that you know, obviously we can leave that up for debate. But I just think some guys do have the ability in certain positions. But I, I think that was it. But I think financially, or from a business standpoint, I don't think I'd have been. Uh, I, I wouldn't have had to wherewithal. You know, even, even from a business standpoint, even at 34 and fully integrated within the business world, I'm still learning at 34. Uh, so I don't think from a financial standpoint, I would have been uh, equipped. But from a athletic standpoint, I think that I, I could have went to the NFL and performed. Uh, even when I was in Denver and, and when I had my act together and I finally got in shape 
And this was after, you know, having two years of laying off and not running. There will be practices where I start to string together uh, some good practices, some good runs, and, and I'll start to perform very well. And I'll say to myself, like, you know, wow, if I could have done this in college and I could have came to the NFL in a, in a different shape or up on a different platform, I know I would have had uh, a solid career. So uh, I don't have any, any regrets about what took place. Uh, everything that I did at the time, uh, be it with criminal activity or uh, the decisions I made, they made sense at the time. And so, you know, I don't have any uh, regrets in regards to, you know, how things played out. What's your relationship with Ohio State University? Uh, the, the, the university and the people, um, the fans at large, is just solid. I haven't been back down there uh, probably because I live about 35 or 40 minutes away from there, and I travel so much. Uh, but, you know, solid. You know, I think that uh, from a personal level, you know, I took so much pride in playing for here. Uh, I took a lot of pride in, um, in winning the championship and the amount of memory that I had the year that I did play. Uh, and, and the amount of love that I just get in town, you know, you just can't replace it. You know, um, I, I know there was a period of time where uh, I, didn't, I wasn't too fond of everything that was going on. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't a bad relationship with Ohio State. It was just really between me and Andy Geiger. And I think Ohio State kind of got lumped into the conversation. Uh, but it was more of a, of a, of a uh, Maurice Claret versus Andy Geiger situation more than an Ohio State situation. But it was just framed that way at the time. Uh, and as I look back on it, you know, it, it, and I think this is anything, this is just a growth process. You know, once you um, become honest about your role and what happened, I think it's a whole lot easier to understand and accept, you know, the, the things that took place after. Uh, whether I like it or not, you know, you just can't take benefits of a college athlete. You know, whether we think that's fair or not, those are the confinements and the rules that we play. And until those things change, until they change, uh, or if they change, or until you create a different platform uh, for guys to play, you, you have to operate within the uh, confinements of it. And so I always look back and say, hey, if I had never done these things, I would have never had a chance to uh, – uh, to run into um, this sort of opposition. And, 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 and so, you know, that, that's my take on it. But with the university, you know, uh, it's cool. So I've understood, like, I went back down there and, uh, you know, I, I walked in the weight room uh, probably back in like 2010, 11, and 12. And uh, this, I think, Urban was just coming around. So I had to be like 12 or 13 whenever he came down there. So uh, I remember Urban, uh, he had recruited me at, um, at Notre Dame. And uh, I remember him and, and, and things of that nature. But I can also understand how the school, um, and, and this is just my personal opinion, how they may try to distance themselves uh, from some things in the uh, the Trussell era. And this is just, you know, this is my personal opinion. And, uh, like, you know, and, and of course you get it because it's a business. You want to rebrand and give Urban his, his platform and allow him to make it who he is. But uh, that, that's sort of like just what I've seen that, uh, you know, they, uh, they're doing a good job with, you know, branding. Uh, this is the Urban era. And, you know, it's great that they won the championship, and, and that, that allows to build something new and, and go, and move, go and move forward. Uh, but my relationship with the university and, and uh, the players uh, are is good right now. You mentioned Coach Tressel. How would you describe Jim Tressel's impact on your life? I would say probably the greatest male figure impact that I've had, you know, in, in my lifetime. I, I, I can say that I had to really think about other guys who have impacted my life in a positive way. And even to this day, you know, even even the opportunities that I have now to do some of the work that we have, uh, even the connections that he's made with me through local government, through, uh, you know, with the governor's office, with, you know, guys who are in Congress, guys who are in, in, in all things legislative in Ohio, he's connected those dots to me. Uh, some of your major uh, state agencies, he's connected those dots with uh, just the opportunity that I've had. You know, he's opened those doors uh, long after I've played or have done anything 
uh, for him athletically. And, that, and that's, that says a lot uh, because a lot of these guys, once these guys get done burning up the football field for them and lifting weights for them, and they're off their campuses, they don't want to do anything with them. And, I, and that goes for a lot of college coaches uh, at small Division three schools or two schools all the way up to uh, Division one schools. You know, once the guys have gone and dumped from them that they uh, don't want or can't do anything with an athlete, and so for him to, um, after everything that we had been through personally, uh, for him to come back and for us to get together and for uh, him to continue to open doors and, and provide opportunity to help me get my life in order, uh, it's just a tremendous um, testament to his character, who he is as an individual. And really, there's nothing that I can do for him. You know, he doesn't do this stuff and he doesn't go and run to, you know, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other social platform and say, hey, look what I did for Maurice. This guy does this stuff silently. You know, one day he uh, called me up and you know, he's like, hey, I want you to meet me somewhere. And so he gave me an address to a, a softball game. And it's literally me and him in the stadium at the softball game, like this indiscriminate area. And we're watching uh, the women's softball team and, and we just chatting away. And, you know, just like he always does, hey, what do you need done? What can I help you with? And, you know, two weeks later, he's following through. Hey, did you get this done? Did you get that done? Did this happen? Did that happen? And, you know, just calling up and checking to make sure that I'm okay or, or that he can help me out. Uh, but this wasn't, uh, like, to gain cool points or to, to put up in the media. Uh, just He's just a, been a positive impact in my life. And so probably probably five, six times a year, you know, whenever the spirit hits me, I'm calling and reaching out to him and saying thank you. Uh, because I know, um, you know, uh, I know oftentimes as athletes, um, you know, we take things for granted. You know, sometimes we think that, you know, the catering and the help that we get, it will forever be in place, uh, and, and it's really not supposed to be. You know, uh, there's people who go out their ways and break their necks to, uh, to, to do stuff for us uh, because they like us, they're inspired by us, and they just want to see us do well. So, uh, like, he's he just been a tremendous help to my life. Walk me through that national championship winning touchdown. Uh, you know, you talked about so much coming at you so quickly. That's sort of the moment. I mean, that's sort of the absolute apex pinnacle for Maurice Claret football player. Talk me through yeah. it. Um, that's the more, I, I, um, and I wish I had, I wish I had a bigger feeling, <laughs> you know, I wish I had like a more beautiful story, but <laughs> they you know, me the uh, damn football. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, I, I think like any, any, uh, any guy who runs the football and they're on the goal line, I think that when you, um, I think the universal feeling, this is just my assumption. Um, I think the universal feeling for most guys who are just, uh, ultra competitive and ultra confident and it's just you saying somehow, some way I'm about to get into this end zone. I think that's the uh, the goal line mentality, you know, and it's not saying like, you know, if I can get in or can I get in, it's like somehow, some way, uh, whether I got to run through somebody, dodge somebody, like I'm getting into the end zone. And, um, of course, you understand the uh, the moment is serious, but just, there's not this big, long, drawn-out, uh, highly produced movie in your head. You know, it's real, it's like real simple, like, yo, look, come on, let's get the ball and let's get busy. Um, and, and obviously that game was um, – was uh, was uh, one of the greatest games that I've ever played in my life, not from a performance standpoint, but just from the magnitude of the game and the amount of individuals who were in the game. And um, and, and literally, um, uh, one of the guys sort of got knocked off track. Uh, I think it was a tackle, and he had basically had pushed in the backfield. I was, I was forced to cut up under him. And I remember uh, seeing D.J. Williams, he was a linebacker at the time, and uh, he, he just wasn't square enough to hit me. Uh, so I basically was able to uh, run through the left side. I mean, it was the right side of him to my left side. And I got so anxious that I seen the uh, touchdown. I just dove across um, and, and eventually scored. And uh, it was probably uh, one of the greatest things that happened in my life uh, from, from an athletic standpoint because 
Obviously, that was the, uh, one of the greatest moments, but it's an iconic picture uh, that I still sign today, you know, here in town as being the game when the touchdown for, uh, for us at Ohio State. And so, uh, you know, to, uh, to know that, you know, you've done something, uh, even though it doesn't mean much to, to, to a, a lot of people, but it means something to the guys who are out there fighting on the field together uh, that you were able to accomplish and say, hey, you know, this year, uh, for nothing else, you know, this moment in time this year, uh, we were able to come together in all of the practice and all the weightlifting sessions and all the film and all the work that we had done collectively, um, you know, it, like we won. You know, that, and that means something. I don't give a damn if it's uh, recreational softball and you go win a championship. Like, at, at any level that you win a championship or you win it all, you know, you can be playing – uh, anything, you know, it doesn't matter when you, when you can come together with a group of guys and, and you can prevail and, and, and win the ultimate end. I just think they're, they're just something special and something childlike. That's an iconic play. That's probably the iconic play of that game that non-Ohio State fans remember the best. But that wasn't the best play you made in that football game. The one that Ohio State fans and hardcore college football fans remember the most was Sean Taylor. Yeah. What 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 was your mindset running down a field after him? Tell us tell yeah. tell the listeners what happened first. Walk us through that play and looking back on it now, describe what the magnitude was of that play. Yeah, um now that that was uh that was actually a cool play. Um we were uh I, honestly you gotta thank Craig Crimson and Ben Hartsock. So we we were in the huddle and Craig Crimson, who's a quarterback in the tight ends, Ben Hartsock, uh they were roommates and um Ben said, Hey, throw me a, a touchdown pass in the national championship game. And so this literally stemmed from uh Craig trying to throw a touchdown pass to his roommate. That's where everything comes from. <laughs> and, and so if you see me at the beginning of the play, I was thinking to myself, like, hell, you know, uh, he's about to throw it to his buddy. So, like, I, I knew it was a pop pass. So I just knew that, you know, there was no need for me to, like, go, like, very hard. So I was supposed to block off the edge of, to, the, to the defender who was coming. And so when I, I block off the edge and, and go um, uh, uh, try to cut block the guy, uh, what happened was the um, – the quarterback threw it, and you heard the shift in cheers. And so if you're on the football field and you're like, oh, you know, like the shift in energy, you know what I'm saying? I was like, oh, there's an interception. <laughs> and so obviously I knew that he was uh, he was getting ready to go, and I was kind of like the last line of defense because I, be, uh, I was the running back and uh, one of the last guys, and all the receivers were down the field. And just from an awareness standpoint, uh, I just knew I had to take an angle. And um, as I started to take the angle, and this just kicked in from practice, uh, one of the first things that you do, uh, and probably the first thing I've done since I was in the ninth grade, one of the first drills that a running back do is ball security. Uh, that's every day when you come to practice, when you step on the field, you do uh, like a series of ball security drills. And so Sean was running down the field, and the first visible thing was that he's carrying the ball very wild. And so as I start taking the angle, I thought that he was going to see me out of his visor but he had one of those uh, those colorful visors, and the closer I got to him, I was like, oh, he doesn't see me. And so I just was like, okay, let me just put my hand in here and wedge it, and I could strip the ball from him. And, like, when I got closer and I got closer, I thought I, I think that he just believed that he was going to run away from me. And so when I was able to stick my hand in there, I was like, okay, if I just pull my body weight down, I know he can't do that because I've gotten the ball stripped from me before, and guys uh, just sort of knocked it down. And so I grabbed the ball, 
and I just rolled my shoulder uh, into the um, into the uh, into his uh, into like the gap between his arm and uh, the football. And the next thing you know, I came up with the football. But Jonathan Vilma uh, basically had grabbed me and, and uh, kind of like dumped me into the field, and I just like, like twitched my neck a little bit. Uh, and the next thing I know, I grabbed the football and came out and ran. And uh, from there, uh, Mike Nugent, you know, he went out to kick the field goal. But that was um, uh, that was the, the gist of that play. But I thank Craig Krenzel for forcing the ball to Ben Hartsock. Craig made like a, a wonderful play. <laughs> so thank you, Craig, if you're listening. <laughs> couple more things, brother. I've taken too much of your time already, but it's fascinating to me. When you're a high school phenom like you were, uh, one of the best players in the country, a lot comes at you real quick. I want to know what the recruiting process is for the best players in the country. What's that entail that we don't see? Ooh, so uh, you're probably not going to like my answer because it wasn't as vicious as it was as it is today. Uh, you know, back when I was being recruited, you can just send letters uh, and you can make calls, but guys weren't as um, as overly aggressive. You know, you, you were talking about these are pre-cell phone. These aren't pre-cell phone days, right. but, you know, high school kids didn't have cell phones and text messages. You know what I'm saying? Uh, if, if a coach wanted to catch you, they had to catch you in the evening. And, you know, they would ask you, hey, when are you going to be home? Do you want me to call between 7 and 10? And so you would get, you know, you would get mass amounts of letters to your house. And they would just basically be these, uh, these standardized letters and, you know, you would have a coach's signature on the bottom and you would have uh, just something on the back like saying, hey, you know, hopefully that you're really considering us um, to come to our school. And, um, and, and sort of that was that. It wasn't, it wasn't as vicious as, 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 that, as that whole process was. And uh, my, my recruiting process was a bit different uh, because I had committed to uh, Notre Dame early. Uh, I committed to um, – Actually, Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer was a receivers coach at Notre Dame. And I committed to him early, and I just kind of like shut the door to it all. But when he left and went to uh, Bowling Green, uh, I then called Ohio State because Ohio State didn't offer me a scholarship, uh, even though I was the number one player in the nation. Ohio State never offered me a scholarship. I just called Jim Trussell and told him I was coming, and he was like, "All right." So there just really wasn't a recruiting process, and so my my my, my experience was a bit different uh, than the, somebody else's per se. Uh, but being that I've probably spoken at probably 60 schools and seen some of these guys, uh, these guys get text messages all day, they get letters all day, they get calls all day, uh, and they're constantly flown out. Or not flown out, they're constantly given tickets or they're invited to you know all of these games and spring practices and uh, these Friday night light sessions. And you know now they're you know you get to take pictures with the gloves on and the jerseys on, and uh, you know you get to post all this stuff on social media. Uh, and I think it creates more of a diva culture now. Like a lot of these kids now, uh, you don't have to um, put in any work to be famous, you know. Or you can, you know, you can play for some little, uh, you know, little Division three school uh, and play against like, you know, sorry guys and, and have some high school success and you know a million followers or, or ten thousand followers as a high school kid, and you know you believe that that you've arrived. Uh, then there's a there's a huge culture shock when these kids get on campus and. You know, you have to compete against everybody who was a somebody at their school. And uh, that's why you see a lot of these kids, they, they cry a lot. You know, they say, they, they, I want to transfer. You know, I'm not getting what I want. And there's like a baby culture uh, amongst a lot of college kids. And that's just my personal opinion. But a lot of that is driven from social media. And, you know, a lot of these guys, uh, they, they go to these universities because they have cool cleats and cool facilities and, and a cool off-campus apartment. 
but you know the the era of uh, of guys like having to duke it out and and work your ass off and, and all of that stuff. Um, that that era is gone. I think some guys. I went down um, to Nick Saban. Uh, in, in Alabama, and I still like the way that he does it. Like when you walk onto the uh, football field down there, you can still feel like that that old school. You got to work your ass off, which you get sort of culture. I remember um, being down in um, uh, down in Florida State when uh, Jimbo Fisher was there, and there was still that level of uh, work your ass off culture. And um, like guys, are some of these college coaches really not uh, buying into all the, the diva culture? Because a lot of these kids get it, and uh, some of these younger college coaches buy into it too much, or they feel like they got to kiss these kids' asses. Uh, but those are the kids you probably don't want to even take them anyway. Like if I have to kiss your ass in order for you to perform or work 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 hard, uh, you probably aren't the guy, or we'll probably have some sort of problem with you when you do become the guy because you're just a diva, and that, and that creates its own internal problems. So that's just my opinion on all that stuff. Uh, I'm still uh, old school, and still you know work your ass off for your respect and you know, hit the weights and, and, and get your ass to class and do all that stuff, do the stuff you're supposed to do in order to become who you're supposed to become. Well said, brother. All right, last thing. With this crazy journey that we started this conversation with and what seems to be a great place in life right now, what's your life's work? What do you view your purpose to be as you progress through the rest of your life? I don't know. I, can, I guess I can only name for the moment. I think that uh, I'm, I'm actually living in harmony uh, right now. I, I think sort of my life purpose and my life work is to speak about, um, I, I don't want to say the injustices, uh, but the uh, the barriers. And I, I'll just name a few different areas. I think the barriers with uh, guys in the incarceration world, right, who are reentering into society and reintegrating back into society and some of the barriers, uh, even just different platforms are, things that I believe I'm connected to now that, that fit so far like my line uh, from that standpoint. I also believe that it's my responsibility to speak about mental health and, and addiction uh, in regards to uh, not, excuse me, not just, um, excuse me, not just uh, from a, um, from a personal standpoint, but from a societal standpoint and to talk about how uh, mental health affects us all. Uh, how therapeutic services look different than just sitting on the couch and, and how there's many therapeutic interventions that you should take and to just raise awareness uh, with uh, what mental health uh, looks like or, or how mental health affects you on a daily basis, what it looks like, what the therapeutic interventions look like, and how uh, the importance of just basically taking care of your mind, your perspective, and just basically your mental health. I think that um, some of my life works speaking to addiction and uh, just helping you to raise awareness with, you know, how this stuff uh, can suddenly creep into your life and how it just can become uh, out of control. You know, this morning I was speaking to a guy that I think that uh, addiction is just basically uh, addiction, whether people identify it or not. I think this kind of ruins so many guys uh, from inner city America, guys and girls' lives, uh, just uh, from not having the ability to have the skills to either cope or deal with um, whatever it is they're going to. I think that from an American standpoint, uh, just the uh, the inability to endure pain, uh, be it mentally, be it physically, or be it emotionally, I think drives a lot of people to drinking wine every five seconds, drinking alcohol, uh, either smoking weed or pills. I think you know, we're, we're a culture addicted to just altering how we feel uh, just to feel comfortable. And what starts off as something recreational uh, picks up into a tolerance and then a dependence of some sort. And so uh, the bill doesn't fit everybody, but I know it fits a lot of people. 
uh, because we, we, we've become into a culture where everything is convenient. And if I want to feel different, I can feel different. But then I also believe that one of our larger missions is just to speak about personal education and entrepreneurship. And I think that the only way that you change inner city America is through um, creating untraditional platforms for kids and people to educate themselves. If you ask me what was the most pivotal thing to happen when I was in prison, uh, outside of the isolation, it was just the, the ability to understand how to educate myself and to comprehend, to just raise my basic comprehension as an individual. And so those are just a few of the things that I speak to, that I think speaks to my life work. And I think that, you know, uh, over uh, the next 20 or 30 years in some capacity, I don't think my life would stem uh, too far away from those things. Uh, football, I just enjoy it. You know, if I can be connected to sports in, in any capacity, uh, just to uh, be around guys that, that look like me, smell like me, feel like me, work like me, and just be around the game, uh, I, I would love to be connected in, in some capacity. That's when football season rolls around and I'm invited to come to these campuses and speak to these kids. I, I enjoy doing it. Um, but that's it. You know, that's the, that's the crux of my life. Uh, and I'm just speaking from a, from a social standpoint. I think that, uh, you know, me and my lady have been together for 14 years. I think that, you know, I do a good job of being a father. I have an 11-year-old girl. I uh, know, you know, I said, I said 11, she's 12 now. You know, I have, a 12, I have a daughter who's 12 years old. She just turned 12 on July 16th. And so uh, being a great example to my family and, and uh, continue to just to get up and, and bust my butt every day, um, you know, um, that, that's sort of my, my life, who I am, my life work, the things that I'm connected to, and hopefully – uh, God blesses me with uh, many more Sundays on this earth, and I'm able to uh, continue to do what I love and, and be happy and peaceful with what I'm doing. Quite a testament. Sometimes, uh, sometimes in this life, our path doesn't take us where we dreamed it might. But with desire and with reflection and with honesty with self, you can really make a difference. And you are certainly a testament to that, Maurice. I appreciate your time, brother. Thank you so much for your insight and your vulnerability. It's going to matter to somebody listening to this thing. Thank you, brother. Uh, Thank you for the invitation, and uh, I greatly appreciate it. It's so interesting to me how he hit rock bottom and went to prison and really found himself while he was incarcerated. And it's also so interesting to me that the written word from so long ago gave him his life's purpose and his life's direction and was a compass for him. And he is such a unique study in what the world can give you and then the world can take away. I appreciate so much Maurice's vulnerability. I appreciate his testimony. I appreciate that he found the willingness to be so honest uh, you just don't hear that kind of honesty very often. And I learned so much from him. It's just, you know, when you think about promise lost as an athlete, he is one of those guys that you look at and think, man, what could have been? But because he had the willingness to be introspective and vulnerable and look inside himself and not be bitter, lose that bitterness, let it, let it wash away. He became someone who is light from the darkness. What a testament to his willingness to do that. And now he's helping so many people and will continue to help so many people. It's awesome. Thanks so much to Maurice for that. Uh, I'm a better man for having heard that. Now it's time for the Marty Party. (laughs) 
What we gonna do, bud? We gonna drink one of these beers. Hand me one of them damn beers real quick. What's up, man? Party party. I'm sure Maurice won a ton of trophies in his day. He was an All-American high school player. He was a phenom at Ohio State. And speaking of trophies, I felt like for the Marty party this week, we had to delve into the treasure trove that is the Marty and McGee hotline. We had some doozies this week. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, Springfield, Missouri, home of Bass Pro Shops. Uh, there you go. I was, I was going to tell you, uh, my, my trophy's in my uh, garage right now. It's a big red wiffle ball bat. You guys, I mean, I, this is my first time calling. You fellas talk about stuff that hits close to home all the time with me, and I I had to call this morning because I have a trophy in my garage. It's a big red Fat Albert bat. Me and my buddy, uh, Jason, I'm a fireman here in Springfield. I listen to you guys every morning when I go to work, come home. Thanks, man. Uh, on the weekends. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But we watch the Cardinals games out in my garage. And in the spring, those damn June bugs come flying in there. And uh, we got that red wiffle ball bat. Oh, and, no. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, we we we, it, but it's like hitting a knuckleball, man, because those things fly like they're drunk, you know. <laughs> and, and it's like Tim Wakefield throwing his knuckleballs, and we're in there hitting these June bugs, and we and we try to hit them out to the street. And if we hit them to the street, then that's a run, and we and we have, but but that red that red fat Albert wiffle ball bat's covered in dried June bug guts, and uh, but, and, it, and it just makes my wife sick man but we hang it up in my garage and she has to pass it every day whenever she goes into the house but, there you go yeah that's that, that's our trophy man you guys were talking about that this morning i was like man i gotta call in i got no, that's call in. and that and, is and, my favorite story in a month oh that and, is great and dude. you're sending a message to the other june bugs don't mess around don't, we used don't, to come, do that. don't come here you know remember when you were kids and you went went uh going after lightning bugs oh yeah what happened to lightning them but do lightning bugs exist anymore yeah, Are they extinct. You know, so in my backyard, I got this big jungle backyard in Charlotte, and they came back this year. Like I hadn't seen them in years, and all of a sudden they're back. I, I haven't seen one in a really long time. Yeah, well, come out here to the house. Well, uh, well, do. There were there were a few nights or weeks when I was growing up in nowhere, Virginia. Where it would look like the 4th of July, there were yeah. so many of them out there. And we'd take a mason jar out there and try to catch a hundred of them. And then, you know, not knowing that we, when we brought them in the house, we were suffocating them. Right. Sorry. Well, this is so pretty as they die. Well, yeah. and you know, well, good thing you didn't have, uh, our boy from Missouri with you because, um, he'd been out there whacking them through the woods. That was, uh, that was awesome. That, that was, was fantastic. Like a, like a Tim, like a Tim Wakefield knuckleball. He, he said, said they fly like they're drunk. Zach in North Alabama. Welcome into Marty McGee. How's it going, man? Good, bud. I was calling, uh, you talking about the trophies, uh, we shoot an archery tournament and it was, it wasn't a trophy you wanted to win. If you lost the tournament for that, that week, you had to sign your name to the biggest pair of pink granny panties on the land. <laughs> and then you had to take those panties with you until you beat Someone at the next tournament. It's not stuck with them all the off season or whatever, man. So, unfortunately, I, I got to I got to sign my name to those panties the very first time I joined the archery team, and uh, so I showed up to the next shoot, and there was a poor gentleman at the time I didn't know it, know his name, but he his name was the one that was all over them panties, and when he seen me coming, he said, 
I knew that young boy was bringing them panties to give them back to somebody. So he was, he was to say I didn't keep them but one time. Oh, Zach. <laughs> now, talking, you talking about a set of panties. I, it was like a parachute. I'm like, good. <laughs> Oh, uh, I don't even know what to say to that. Uh, all I know is you're going to be in I've heard, I've, I've heard of parachute pants. That might be my first foray into parachute panties. If you're going to go into a bow tournament in northern Alabama, <laughs> you better bring your game. Otherwise, <laughs> you're going to have to sign the granny panties. If you thought that was the stupidest 10 minutes of your life, just hold the phone. Literally. Words, sayings, or just a way of life. Roman candles. That's a redneck mortar launcher. That's what that is. <laughs> this is Hillbillyisms. Hello? Is this Matt? It is. Matt, this is Marty Smith from ESPN. What's going on, brother? Brother, I'm paying at rent. Uh, I understand via the Hillbilly hotline that you have a tale about bottle rockets and redneckery and uh i need to hear this and you're being recorded you are live to tape on the marty's miss america podcast sweet well first of all i'm a college basketball coach my favorite part of july recruiting is being up in the car early enough on saturday mornings tracking across across the country listening to you guys well thank you brother we appreciate that so so yeah when i when i was a kid um me and my cousin my cousin was about he was about 11 and I was about seven. So, you know, we were always into stuff and it was about a week before the 4th of July. My uncle was just, he started in already, you know, look, I'm going to buy you guys a bunch of bottle rockets, but you got to shoot them out of the old glass Coke bottle. And, you know, you have to safety, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I grew up in a town of about 600 people and, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a redneck law that, if there's 600 people in town, there's going to be one town drunk. And so, so the guy, the guy's name literally was Pee Wee. That was his given name, not a nickname, Pee Wee. And, uh, so it's the 4th of July rolls around. We've been shooting off these bottle rockets. I mean, we probably had 10,000 of these things. And it gets to about 10 o'clock at night. So, you know, Pee Wee probably started at about 8 that morning, you know, and he, he had been drinking all day and he stumbles into my uncle's backyard. So me and my cousin are out there shooting off these bottle rockets out of the Coke bottle and Pee Wee walks up and he just grabs a handful, lights them with his cigarette. And my uncle's looking out the window and these bottle rockets are, he's so drunk, he's not even letting go of them. So they're just going off in his hand. And, you know, so my uncle spent this whole week lecturing us about, you know, the safety of bottle rockets. And I, all the stupid stuff me and my cousin have done, you know, through our teenage years, our 20s, and everything, I've never seen my uncle as mad as he was at that grown man because Pee Wee stumbled into the backyard and couldn't shoot. He couldn't even let go of the bottle rockets. He was so drunk. They were just going off in his hand. Listen, man, you're right. I grew up in a small town as well, and uh, every small town does have its town drunk. And uh, I, I'm gl- so so. Did Pee Wee emerge unscathed? Um, Pee Wee, other other than um, being scathed by my uncle, yes, he 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 emerged unscathed. Um, 
But it, even if he would have caught on fire or blown a finger off, he would have had no clue. He was <laughs> he, he was that he was that deep in for the day. What do and, you remember? Um, what do you remember about the messaging from your uncle to Pee Wee? Um, he just he I just remember him saying, you know, I've been telling these kids for a week not to be doing stupid stuff like this, and I look out and you're the idiot out here about to blow your hand off. What, all right, before we let and, you go, what what college, what what university do you coach for? I I am starting the women's basketball program at Florida National University in Miami. Starting awesome. it from scratch. This will this will be the first year. I've been on the job for about uh, for for literally over a month, about two days past a month, about thirty five days here, and starting from scratch. We are playing this year. You know, usually. When schools decide they're going to start a program from scratch, they give you a year to recruit, and I've had about a month. So um, so I'm trying to put a roster together for this year. We're, we are NAI, um, you know, small college. Uh, we're growing. Um, you know, we're, we're in Miami, brother, four miles from the Miami area. It's a long way from Morton's Gap, Kentucky, to Miami, Florida, let me tell you. What is your mascot? What is the Florida National University mascot? Hey, this, we have the best mascot in the country. So, have, did, did you have to read Don Quixote when you were in elementary course, school, Miss Odell? Of course. Okay, we are we are the Conquistadors. No way! That's a great name. We are the Conquistadors. I mean, you should be able to get six or eight five stars just on the Conquistadors alone. Let me tell you something, people. People, they just want to live in Miami. They don't even. I mean. I want to live in Miami. I mean, it, you know, that that was my whole thing. I took a pay cut to go to Miami. Well, I'm tell you something. I am now officially a, it's Florida National University. Is that right? Florida National University. All right. I'm a big Florida National University Conquistador supporter. Go get them, Coach. And hey, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to send you a T-shirt. I'll wear it. I'm going to send you. I'm going to send you a T-shirt, and I'm going to the Clevelander. When I get back off the road recruiting, I'm going to take Stu Gotts a T-shirt. There you go. I can't wait. I'll and be wearing that thing talk, proud. And you son. guys can talk about it on the air. We will. We'll, we'll definitely do that. Now, listen, uh, we're going to be cheering for you. Make sure that you teach those young ladies uh, a proper bottle rocket safety during practice. <laughs> and uh, say what's up to Pee Wee for us, brother. Be good. Thank you. Yep. Pee Wee. Oh, Pee Wee. Got to be careful. Travis, when the conquistadors. Yeah, when you when it comes to bottle rocket safety, son, that's real. That's why we used to put them in those oars. We'd saw those oars in half. On Marty McGee this week, all we talked about was wiffle bats. Wiffle, I mean, wiffle bat makes a really good, really good bottle rocket bazooka. I digress. Uh, so that's, uh, you know. I've got, I'm, that's the hillbilly hotline. That's the hillbilly hotline right there. I mean, we actually called him this week. And he's uh, the head coach of the Florida National University Lady Conquistadors. Get some. I love it. That, Travis, is the Hillbilly Hotline, son. What's the number? I forget. 860-516-1315. 860-516-1315. Y'all call us because I know you guys have uh, Redneck Olympic stories. Everybody has Redneck Olympic stories from their tailgates, from their backyard. I mean, look, Matt just told us a tale from being seven years old in the backyard when the town drunk peewee showed up with bottle rockets. Huh? Appreciate y'all listening. Thank you so much, Travis. Thank you, brother. Uh, I know that was a very special show for you. Travis is an Ohio State Buckeye to the death. So uh, having Maurice on was big for Travis. Yeah, that was a self-serving guess. I'll admit it. I know it. it was. Man, I'm not dumb. I know the story. I know the score around here.
But I loved it. I mean, I learned so much, and I appreciate again, as I said earlier, when you when you hear somebody who has it all, who ha- when you hear somebody who has what is perceived as it all, and then realizes what is so important in life, and is able to take missteps and make them lessons for others, it is wonderful to see. Because look, you heard him talking. You heard him saying guns, gangs, drugs, alcohol, all of those things, violence. That can go wrong real quick. And he made a conscious decision while he was in prison. That's not going to be me. I'm going to make this a lesson for others. And he has done that. He is doing that. And that is his purpose and his life's work. It's wonderful. And I appreciate him for that. Thanks so much to Kalo for being invested in me personally, in my family, and in this podcast financially. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen. Please subscribe, rate, and review. I know it's trivial, but it matters to us. And above all, thank you for your passion and your loyalty to this platform. I'm so blessed and so appreciative that I live in the United States of America. We have the greatest country in the world. Thank you to the men and women who protect it and who keep us free. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you next time around.